as a result of what's been going on in the world in 2020 with the outbreak of this virus and because of the current restrictions on social distancing, I've decided to launch something special for my current Film Connection students. So today is the first episode of the Alphabet City Films cast, sort of like a hybrid between a conference call and a podcast, where I'm going to be bringing on guests like cinematographers, other directors, actors, screenwriters, and crew people that I've worked with in order to discuss the filmmaking process. For all intensive purposes, it's a members-only podcast, only open to my Film Connection students who have sent in questions that we're going to discuss uh, ahead of time. I'd like to even bring on former Film Connection students that have been working in the production field. So our first guest today is cinematographer Alex Gray, who I've worked with a lot and who shot my feature film, The Trouble. And the topic today is working collaborations between directors and cinematographers. Enjoy. Alex, how are you? Good, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Welcome to the first cast, sort of like a <laughs> hybrid between a, a podcast and a phone call, a conference call. And first, let me introduce Alex. Alex Gray is a cinematographer, also known as a director of photography, who I work with pretty closely. Would you say, Alex? Yeah, definitely. And we work... Exclusively. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, we've worked together very closely for the last six years, including shooting a feature film having shot commercials together, having shot shorts and all kinds of things, having DP'd on things that I've produced. And I appreciate having you on, Alex. Cool. Yeah. Good to be on. So I guess first, let me ask you, how would you des describe your role as a cinematographer in general? Uh, I guess just the head of the visual department. So you kind of oversee... Uh, just how the image comes out, depending on the budget of the film. That could either mean uh, operating the camera and, you know, doing everything yourself or uh, kind of directing the crew, um, the, te the technical aspects of the crew, uh, collaborating with the gaffers, um, collaborating with the uh, camera assistant, camera operators. So it really does just kind of depend on the budget and stuff. But so, visual and communicating with the director to get the best, uh, the best image of the story, I guess. Yeah. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the, the creative and technical collaboration between a director as well as a cinematographer. Right. Now, I know you've worked with other directors and I know you worked on some other, aside from The Trouble, you've also worked on movies like Yellow Scare and, and other things. Could you talk a little bit about the creative collaboration between a director and a cinematographer, like from your experience? Sure. Yeah. So Yellow Scare, I was uh, first assistant camera, and I did one day of uh, second unit. And how film. one day of unit? Second unit. Second so, unit, gotcha. So second unit cinematographer so it was a day Alan couldn't make it in so I, I filled in for, for the right. shoot on that and I think it's important to note that you kind of you you kind of did second unit by filling in that day but a lot of times on a on a on a feature film second unit might be concurrently shooting something yeah. that's a lot of times how right. the second unit is actually used so let's say the primary yeah. film crew is shooting a scene and then they're pressed for time. The The director or producer might send an additional film crew. Let's say they need an establishing shot of like a sunset or a time lapse or, or something. Yeah. A lot of times if it's something that doesn't involve people in particular or like yeah. actors specifically that, you know, yeah. or have dialogue in the scene. Um, so that's a lot of times that's what the second unit is doing. Yep. Yeah, especially on uh, shows like Game of Thrones where they have multiple taking place at the same time but in different areas they'll have they actually have I think like three different units uh, or more all working at the same time wow 30 different units three. Oh, three. okay three yeah, 30. Say, <laughs> 30. 30 is like unheard of but yeah three <laughs> three I could see yeah yeah um yeah, they, would have, they would have multiple units filming at the same time so so I we're gonna jump right into some questions so actually, Michael, 
who is on the chat line. He's one of my film students is, shout out to Michael Augustin, who's on the line. He's asking if a unit is a storyline or multiple storylines in a unit. No, a unit isn't a storyline, Michael, but it's a it's a portion of a film crew. Think of a unit as a crew, as like a cluster of a film crew, if that makes any sense. Now, let's say you have your first unit, your primary unit that's filming a scene somewhere. When we say second unit, that means that like there's like a skeleton film crew filming somewhere else, meaning a portion of the film crew divided and then they're going and handling some other task like some they're they're handling some other shot specifically does this make any sense and alex is that would you say like that's uh so michael michael saying yes um alex that you would you say i explained it correctly or do you want to add anything to that no you explained it perfectly okay cool so we're gonna jump into some questions that the students have brought me and One of the questions, this is coming from, we have uh, another student that's at work right now. His name is Victor Freeman. Victor is asking, when when describing a relationship between two characters, what lenses do you feel are best to use? Okay, great. Yeah, so it really does depend on the relationship between your two characters. So if you have characters that are kind of in each other's face, right, and they're getting very close to each other, then maybe a wider lens would be, you know, so you can feel like you're you're in their area. Or if they're characters that are maybe defined, maybe if a character that's fine on another character, then you kinda wanna go with the telephoto because it makes it feel like it's further away. Because it's kind of that's how our mind kinda is trained to see uh the relationship between the kind of the lens and the subject. Hey Alex, um, quick I'm so I'm so sorry. Yeah. Am I yeah. on speaker and the only reason I'm asking is because the audio sounds a little weird on my end. Uh yeah. Is it better? Yeah, that is better. Okay, so way you want to repeat that, or yeah, yeah, actually, if you don't, if you don't mind, because okay. it sounded so, yeah, a little, a little just, muffled. Yeah, it just depends. So it, it depends on the relationship between the two characters. What lens I would choose? So say um, the two characters are in each other's face, then I would choose a wide angle lens because it's like uh, I guess it just feels more intimate. You're closer, and you're in their area. Or if, if the character's trying to get inside someone else's mind or something, you know, like stuff like that. But then if the character gets standoffish, then maybe switch to a telephoto or, or something a little lighter, maybe a 50, um, to kind of emphasize that space that the character is. Um, or, or say even you have a character that just needs a lot of room to move around. I would definitely choose something that kind of gives them that room to move around. Uh, so it kind of just really depends uh, on the relationship of the characters and kind of what the scene calls for. That's a good question. I would add to that point that aside from just lens choices in general, it's also about the angles that you use. For instance, if it's a boss Mm -hmm. talking to one of his employees and his boss is talking down to his employee, you might want to position the boss where you're, you know, you might want to position the camera where you're actually slightly looking up at the boss where like, Mm -hmm. you know, he has a little bit more prominence in the composition of the frame as well. And you might want to position the tripod and the camera, depending if it's on the sticks, but either way, position the camera where you're looking down at the employee physically, you know, just to you emphasize get that. Into, you can also get into some really cool stuff, like say that the, the power and dynamic between the two characters change in the in the actual uh, real time of the conversation in the film, and you can go from a low angle to a high angle, to where yeah. the character feels like he's less powerful, and then you take him to a higher power level. Which Correct. Just, the, just the, the movement the, of arms. The movie uh, American Beauty comes to mind when uh, Kevin Spacey's character is actually talking to his boss. Um, as much as I'd yeah. hate to reference Kevin Spacey <laughs> right now, but <laughs> but it is it is you know Sam Mendes directed that movie and he's a masterful director and you know it's really just powerful illustration of what Alex is talking about in terms of the shifting dynamics within the scene itself. Yeah. But um. Good question from Victor. Um, we're going to jump into one of Michael's questions as are the roles of the DP director, cinematographer and screenwriter always individual duties on set and are they blurred most of the time blurred as in do some individuals always do more than those things, any of those things at a given time. So my answer to that is each of those are specific roles you know, so DP and cinematographer, first of all, for those that you aren't aware, 
those are pretty much interchangeable terms. So, you know, a DP is another way of saying cinematographer. So, but does the role of the DP blend into the role of the director? And does it blend into the role of the screenwriter? Those are all specific functions. So think about it that way, you know. However, a lot of times the director might also be the screenwriter. For example, Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino directed Pulp Fiction and he also wrote Pulp Fiction, right? Versus Goodfellas where Martin Scorsese directed Goodfellas, but he didn't write the screenplay for Goodfellas, you know? And in each of those cases, they had their own directors of photography, their own cinematographers that worked on those films. Now, you might have a rare case like Steven Soderbergh, who directed Ocean's Eleven, but he also was the DP of Ocean's Eleven. Or Paul Thomas Anderson, who directed Phantom Thread and was also the DP of Phantom Thread as well. He was also the cinematographer of Phantom Thread. But it's very rare, especially on a film of a bigger budget, for the director to be the DP. Now, on a very low budget, that's when I feel like you see the most amount of blurred lines and the most amount of people doing additional duties on set. Wearing the multiple hats. Wearing multiple hats, correct. Or you might have a gaffer also serving as the grip and production assistant or, you know, that sort of thing. But the bigger the set, the more there's well-defined roles for each thing, except for screenwriting and directing. I think that's, to some extent, subject to get blurred. Even if those roles are different, you know, things might change on set, like an actor is going to change the way that they say a line and the director might give it an approval and there might be another screenwriter involved. And so then there's those sort of sorts of lines being blurred, but um, yeah, low, low, especially with low budget sets, it really feels like they're, they're almost like have a life of their own. Like they're living sets and things, things like move around so fast. And so uh, I guess people, people really exercise their ability to solve problems with lower budget sets. I say, uh, one of the DPs gets sick or one of the grips gets sick or gaffer gets sick or, you know, just w- whatever happens, uh, then someone else steps in to fill that role. And it could be anywhere from the director to the cinematographer to the first AC to the, you know, it could be anybody that, that can fill the role, will fill the role. Uh, so I think it, it does get really blurred. You're right. It gets like super blurry on, uh, on the low budget stuff. Yeah. So we're going to jump to one of Damien's questions. So first of all, shout out to Damien Daniels, another Film Connection student that currently works at a hospital, which uh, God bless you if you work at a hospital at a time like this. I really salute yeah. people that work in, you know, every every Amen. every workers that are working at essential job functions. Wow. So Damien is, um, his question is, as a filmmaker, how do you work on a tight budget? <laughs> which is something that me and Alex have a lot of experience on in general. Yeah. <laughs> from yeah, from having the production team spray paint practical lights that are, were bought from <laughs> Home Depot to using shower curtains to diffuse light there's a there's a whole list of things that you could do to work on a tight budget but this is something that I say very often is that you can't work fast cheap and good you could do two out of the three but it can't be three out of the three would you agree Alex Yes, uh, you can cheat the system a little bit by owning your own gear. If you if you start like a collection of, of your own lenses and own your own gear, that does cut into you know like you know and get used to it, familiar self with it, and make sure it's like a high quality uh, uh, you know like system that you bought and, and invested into. Then you can you know it's like say you already own an Ari Alexa, and then you start uh you get hired on a project that has relatively low budget but then you you know part of your packages that you come with the Ari alexa then it's kind of like you, you can kind of cheat it a little bit but there's not a lot of room for leeway with the with what that's talking about the, the cheap fast and good yeah rule kind of reigns supreme so a lot of times like you really have to pick like so for example if you're working cheap right that means you can't then also do a speedy production and then it's also good. You know, let's say you're working cheap and you're trying to work fast. It's probably going to be bad. The outcome is probably going to not be good, you know, but let's say you want it to be cheap and you want it to be good. 
well then you know same thing like what i'm just saying is you know it's going to be slower you have to yeah. take your time a little bit more because you're working on limited funds you know, yeah, a the, lot of it's finding that balance between the three like trying to find where you can mm-hmm. sacrifice and where you can like pour a lot of effort into to kind of get the best end result yeah so we're, we're gonna jump into one of victor's other questions how do you fight against the light of the sun when shooting outdoors? Money. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. But, HMIs, but, but, but in real, realistically, realistically, there's a lot of apps you can use. Um, <laughs> I use Sun Surveyor. I've been using that for about a year or two now, and and it's been doing it's been doing wonders for me. Just knowing where the sun is going to be at. Um, you can use Google Maps to kind of see how the sunlight's going to hit in that particular. Uh, week or, or month or whatever, um, you can kind of try to try to uh, just do your best to, to figure out where you're going to be and where the sun's going to be at during what what. So scheduling is a huge huge part of avoiding sun related issues, and then and then I guess yeah, just use the app. And uh, but if you have a if you have a big budget, you can just block it out with big giant uh, flags that you can put up or HMIs. Um, you can even, even make an outdoor scene look like it's daylight with, if you have a powerful enough HMI, so that's, I guess that's the best way to handle it. But then on a low budget, it's all, all in your scheduling. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, and I mean, there's certain things that you could do to flag out light, you know, to an extent, to an extent, if you're as, if you're in a pretty open area, you would need very, very large flags for a, for a full scene. But they, the, but they are used. Characters. I mean, you know, the question yeah. is, yeah. this question for is, sure. or not, how do you do it on like a zero budget? He's just asking, how do you do it in general? And so, yeah. in general, in general, yeah, you'd want to fly out the sunlight, bring in your own source of light, and then diffuse it to the quality of light that you want, you know, to fit the scene. And, Granted, you know, whichever budget you're given for the project, you just try to make that work uh, with what budget you have. Yeah. But it usually always involves modifying the natural sunlight in some way, whether it be through diffusion, uh, flags, which are which are just basically black sheets that you put up to kind of block out the sun entirely or cast things into a shadow. Uh, and then bringing in your own, yeah, your own sources like HMIs or LEDs or just whatever you have that can offset the uh, putting your your shadows or putting shadows onto your actors. And also, um, I mean, you know, it should be noteworthy that we've used a ton of black wrap for all kinds of things. Yes, sculpting light it's, it's, in particular. That's the cheapest method, I think. <laughs> black wrap everything yeah which is like a black type of aluminum foil specifically used for production related things specific and a lot of times specifically lighting okay so because victor had a lot of questions we're going to use go to another victor question um victor is asking what is three-point lighting why do you feel it's effective and do you use it so i'll let you take point with three-point lighting sure. out. Yeah, three-point lighting is your key, your fill, and then your backlight, flash hair light, edge light, whatever you're using to shape your character out of the background. Um, and it's great for bringing your character more attention to your subject and kind of carving them out of the background. Uh, but I wouldn't use it, I think, for every single scene. And, and the more I shoot, the less I kind of try to rely on it because it doesn't fit a lot of scenes. And it's, it, it can also, as much as it can carve a character out of their scene, it can also kind of carve out a chunk of the atmosphere as well, especially if all your lighting resources are focused on lighting a particular subject when it could be used to kind of light the background or light out like what's going on in the scene. So I think right. three-point and- lighting does have its, definitely have its uses, uh, but I think, use it when appropriately and then yeah. when, and a lot of times uh, especially in in cinema and if you want something to really come out cinematic it you're probably going to go away from that a little bit and away yeah. from kind of something because but, but essentially there's always going to be a key and a fill but sometimes there can be just a fill and the entire scene is lit with just the fill light or 
just the key light or, you know, vice versa, even just the rim light. And, and it can look really, really good. And I think some of those moments are what stand out the most in cinema is when things just kind of like uh, are played more to the scene itself than just to the subject. And I think that's what three-point lighting kind of does is focuses, hyper-focuses on the subject itself. Right, and it's the, the most, I think it's fair to say that three-point lighting is the most generic yes. positioning. Like if you're not thinking... Oh, let's, you know, it's the most standard run of the mill way to light a scene in the subject. Yeah. It's, it's the go-to it's the it's, Swiss army knife of lighting. Yeah. It's Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but good question. Very good question. Uh, so let's go to Michael's second question. Um, as a director, are you inherently also the screenwriter if not, how do you separate those roles on set? Where do cinematographers for okay? That's actually another question. Um, so that that kind of is like the ties into the first question, Michael. Um, as a director, you could be the screenwriter. I usually am the screenwriter. I'm a writer director. So there's people like myself that are writer directors. Then there's people that are just directors that, you know, they adapt other people's work. And then, you know, those things are inherently separated, you know. But when, as me, as the right as the writer-director, I kind of have my screenwriting hat on when I'm developing the story. And then when I'm actually directing the story, I almost treat it as somebody else wrote it, you know, meaning that things I'm not as precious. I'm not so precious about the words, maybe as some other people are like, you know, there, there are directors um, like Noah Baumbach who made the movie marriage story and he made the squid and the whale. I heard he's very, very particular about, he doesn't let his actors even change a single word. Now I'm the type of director that, if it's not rolling off the tongue of an actor, one of the lines, the way that I wrote it, I'll let them make it their own. You know, I'm a little more improvisational. And so is Martin Scorsese. You know, when he directed Goodfellas, he encouraged, you know, improvisation from the actors, like the famous Joe Pesci scene where he's like, what is so funny, Henry? Like, am I funny to you? That whole thing was improvised and it's a brilliant scene, you know? So that's kind of how I justify that, you know, or, you know, that's my, my method of operations, you know, but everybody has a different way of working. Some people are more, some directors who are writer directors are more precious with the words. I think in television, they have certain rules that's different than film. I'm not so familiar with how it goes down in the TV world, but I know that the show creator I think is higher on the totem pole than episodic directors, you know, versus in film where the, the director is pretty much the boss, but good question. Um, so Dame, one of, we're going to go to one of Damien's questions where Damien's second question is when a situation happens such on such as like faulty equipment on a set faulty equipment during a production how do you work around that that's a great question yeah because that happens mm-hmm. it can shut entire productions down it could shut entire productions down and I, I want to tell a brief story about when it threatened to shut down an entire production. When I was on a set, I was directing a short film of mine called The Korean Girl. And this is back in 2012. Before I met Alex, I was working with a, a previous DP. And I had a tightly scheduled day. You know, it was the last day of the shoot. There was all these fight sequences. We had our actress. She was from Korea. She was moving back to Korea a couple of days later. I had to corral the whole production. There was like 20 
something people there, including the actors, were there in my p- parents' basement. I think our call time was at 7.30 in the morning. By 9 a.m., we were supposed to start shooting. So call time is when everybody's supposed to arrive. And then the shoot time is obviously when the first shot goes off. So it's a little bit, you know, it's it's a little bit before 9 when the DP said, hey, Zeph, we have a problem. And the, those are the words that you never want to hear, especially before it's shooting time. I was like, well, what's the problem? And we were shooting on a red camera at the time. And he was like, well, the viewfinder is not working. It's like, what do you mean the viewfinder is not working? He's, he's like, it's not working. It's not turning on. I'm like, well, Jesus, what are we going to do? Could we shoot without the viewfinder? He's like, no, we can't shoot without the viewfinder because all the functionality from the camera on this particular camera is in the viewfinder. I'm like, holy shit. You know? So we had to go on a scramble. I could not rearrange the day. Like we, like, you know, I think a lot of people would have shut down production right there and then. And this was on a Saturday in New York, you know, in the suburbs. But if people that aren't familiar with film sets and rental houses, a lot of the production houses, rental places like B&H and Adorama and, you know, different places in New York, they're closed on Saturdays. They're open on Sundays, but they're closed on Saturdays. Um, so it was very difficult. We couldn't just buy another viewfinder for the red. And what we ended up doing was just going on a scramble. Me, the producer, George, the DP, like everybody was kind of like contacting different people. And finally, George Rudai, or where the DP had found somebody that had this viewfinder for rent in Staten Island. There were a couple guys in Staten Island that had it. We rented it. Well, we had our producer, George, drive from Westchester out to Staten Island and go rent this viewfinder right there in the spot. And we knew that we are going to lose a large chunk of time. And what I did in that meantime was I worked with my actors on carefully planning out and rehearsing what we're going to do. And I worked with the DP who was on set to just plan shot by shot what what the game plan was going to be to a T. So then even though we were losing many hours, we were going to sort of make it up in the air, as I like to say. And that's what we did. Um we were supposed to start shooting at nine o'clock. We didn't start shooting until 3 p.m. But we did it, you know. We pulled it off and we finished the shoot at 11 p.m. and we got all the shots that we needed. So, Alex, do you want to contribute anything to that conversation about what do you do when? Yeah, I mean, thank, thank God in your situation, you're in the city where there's like a dense population of filmmakers at the at the ready to help each other out uh that's true yeah yeah (laughs) um yeah i mean we've had uh, we've had our fair share of technical difficulties just throughout our many shoots but somehow we always just kind of find a way to make it work uh i think uh, yeah filmmaking is is a problem-solving medium so every filmmaker is kind of like has to put their problem-solving hat on from the minute like that they start pre-production. Um, so I think just being prepared, like when you step on set that, okay, things could go terribly wrong today and nothing could work the way I want it to work. And usually like 50% of the time, it's not going to go the way you had it envisioned in your head, especially technically. Um, uh, but pre-production, I think can offset a lot of the technical issues and then setting lights up and yeah wholeheartedly agree with everything that Alex is saying. Yeah. Filmmaking is a problem solving medium. And the more that you're equipped and the more that you're prepared with pre-production, then the better you're suited to handle those problems when they arise on set. Yeah. I doubt there's ever been um, a big budget film that hasn't had at least one technical issue happen on set. 
So I think it's just you, from the moment you step on set, you should be prepared for something to go wrong, no matter what role you're in on set. Yeah, I'm with you. Good call. Good question. Um, let's go to one of Victor's many questions. Um, are there certain rules or steps you use to light a scene to achieve the look that you want? Rules for, for lighting? Um, well, I mean, lighting is very subjective, and especially when it, in conjunction with like the story that you're trying to tell. Um, but the most... I guess the most, the closest thing to a rule that you can fall back on uh, would be just ratios. Watch your ratios. See how bright your actor is in turn, or in I guess comparison to how back back uh, or how bright the background is. Just look at your your ratios, and you can do that a couple of different ways. You can do that with false colors, um, which will give you give you kind of an idea. If you want something a little more accurate, you can use a light meter, which will tell you like from spot to ambient how bright a specific area is, say the face could be a specific ratio and then you want your key light maybe two, two F-stops higher or T-stops higher than that specific ratio, then you adjust for that with, with dimmers on your lights or with your um, AD or there's just a bunch of different ways you can get the light to hit the subject in the backgrounds the way you want them to. Uh, but as far as rules, I guess the inverse square rule would be the most one of the more important ones which is the closer a light is to your subject the harsher the fall off so if you put a light really really close to your subject expect everything in the background to go very very dark and underexposed um and then further the light goes away from your subject the more kind of um the more even everything will look and the background will get brighter and that, that's uh, there's there's a lot more to the inverse square uh, law with lighting, but that's kind of the basics of it. And it and it there's there's different fall off points. Like halfway back, uh, it, the fall off is exponentially faster than than um, than if you were to, you kept moving. But it's definitely something you might want to look into. Is the inverse square law, and then yeah, just ratios. You can watch your ratios. Make sure your ratios reflect what you're going for. Like a low key scenario or like a noir film is going to have a steeper ratio between your key light and your fill light. Whereas maybe something high key or comedy is going to have like less of a steep um, fall off between the ratios. So it's just, that's kind of, I guess the, the only thing. And then everything else with lighting is very subjective and, and dependent on the story you're trying to tell. Nice. Well said. And also one of Victor's next questions is, do you believe that natural light is the best light source? Uh, no, no, I think, just whatever light, whatever light, again, you're, you're trying to tell your story with is going to be the best light source. So say you have a guy smoking a cigarette, he comes out of the bar, it's a really intense scene, maybe it's really gritty and there's something like really bad just happened, he's standing next to a neon red sign, right? But the neon red sign isn't giving enough light to really give the effect you want, so you bring in a red LED and then it changes the scene and makes everything like, it goes from, from guy standing outside at night smoking a cigarette to like a cinematic emotional piece where you know you have this like red light that's just bleeding through the frame so it just kind of like goes goes yeah with what i was saying earlier with lighting is it's all very subjective and scene dependent and story dependent um and no natural light is not always the best the best light available or practical lights are not always the best um but sometimes they are it can also go kind of on the flip side of that sometimes they can be like exactly what the scene calls for and you could step onto a set and and all the lights could already be kind of where you want them and you can just hit the record button that's very rare but it can happen for sure yeah but good question and great answer definitely yeah because and i wholeheartedly totally agree with alex that whatever light source you know it depends it really just depends there's so many variables like sometimes natural light might happen to be the best light source yeah absolutely but, but it, it but I think it's important to think what, just like what Alex said, whatever light source that you could use at your disposable, at, at as your tool, think of light as a tool, you know, and you know, just how sometimes when you're building something, you might need a screwdriver. That screwdriver might be the most effective tool in that moment, or it might be the hammer or it might be, you know, a saw. So it just depends on, 
you know, light, light is really the tool that you're using to tell, help tell your story. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to go to one of Michael's next questions. Um, where do cinematographers find the most consistent work? Is it in commercials? Where, where do cinematographers find the most consistent work? Yeah. Uh, we're, we're probably word of mouth. I mean, that's where most of my work comes from. Um, I also do color gigs, uh, which is coloring in films. Most films are shot in raw. And a lot of the work I get just comes from friends of friends and, and people who know that that's what you do. And then, uh, so it can be anything. It can be uh, that uh, the majority of the things I've shot have been uh, independent films, but that's because that's what my circle of friends and my network has kind of pushed me around as, as an independent cinematographer or colorist who colors that, that kind of stuff. But then maybe someone who does commercials, um, that's what their network kind of spreads them around as. And, and that's what they're, hired for on a consistent basis. So it's all kind of like what you put out there uh, that you want to do and what you kind of advertise yourself as. And, uh, um, and then there's a whole other level to it, which is when you get wildly successful, I guess, and then you get unionized and then that's a whole different beast though. And I, I know very little about <laughs> unionized work, but and the independent scene and on the, on the kind of lower budget stuff, uh, it's, it's mainly just word of mouth has been my experience at least. Yeah. And I guess, Michael has another question, but this is a later question, but I think it could be like a follow-up question to this one. What did the, where are the best places to network in the industry? With, with other filmmakers, just anywhere you can talk to other filmmakers, be around other filmmakers, uh, get together. Like they do a lot of stuff at BNH even where a bunch of filmmakers will get together and just talk to each other or talk about a specific subject or, uh, Anywhere that you can kind of be like, like Zeph has a story where we met our Steadicam operator, uh, where he just <laughs> saw him. Hey, you want to tell the story? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll tell this story. So, yeah. um, we recently have been working a lot with this, you know, he's beyond just a Steadicam operator. His name is Jeff Duncanson and he's a Steadicam operator. He, he, you know, we've been using him as a gaffer and he's just like, he's yeah, a sort very of talented guy, talented Super guy, smart. MacGyver of sorts. Um, yeah. And I, saw, I was driving with my wife and with my kids in Yonkers to my aunt's house in the middle of the day on like a Saturday. And then I see this guy with this giant Steadicam rig attached to his body. It was like $25,000 worth of gear on his person <laughs> that I saw him like, <laughs> like, like walking and then filming a woman. And then he walked inside of a driveway into a garage. And I, as I saw this, I'm driving by it. I turned my car around, <laughs> like spun the car around, parked the car, like by his driveway and got out of the car and just like yelled out down into the garage. I'm like, Hey, like, what are you filming in there? <laughs> which, which, which is the most obtrusive thing in the world, except that he happened to be a really nice guy and he came out and I was like, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I'm a filmmaker. And I just, you know, I couldn't help but notice you had this awesome steady cam that we started talking and we ended up getting coffee the next day and we just we became instant friends really. And then I brought him on to, uh, I, I had told him that I'm producing a horror short film and we happened to be shooting it, you know, uh, about a month later and I invited him to be part of that shoot and he did and, you know, the rest is he did great. Yeah. yeah. He did fantastic. Yeah, so that's the moral of that story is just be seen doing what you do with, with the tools that you use to do it. And that's true. People will, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Well said. Um, but great question from Michael. So, Definitely. um, Damien's third question, what type of stories would you like to bring to the screen? if you had the chance to work with any celebrity alive or deceased, <laughs> I know that, um, there's, there's so many stories that I personally would bring to the screen. Um, and I happen to be very focused on writing my next film, which is called sustenance. And I'm now we brought on a co-screenwriter, Bobby Peretti and, Alex and I have been talking about sustenance for a long time. Alex is going to be the DP. So he's involved on a very pre pre production level of imagining 
the texture of that story. And we have talked about working with the actor, Timothy Chalamet. So it'd be amazing if we got him. It would be a big get, but you know, and also for Huxley, I mean, this would be like a dream to, but to work with Josh Brolin or an actor of that caliber, you know, for Huxley who plays the billionaire, you know, the story is about a group of anarchists that kidnapped the daughter of a prominent billionaire. So I think either way, we want to work with a known face for the billionaire who plays Huxley and Timothy Chalamet would be the the most perfect Alex, who's sort of the leader of uh, the anarchists. So that's what I would say. Is there anything you you want to talk about, Alex? Like, a, no, I, a dream? I mean, I'm I'm down. I'm down for bringing testament to the screen currently. Yeah, that's that's a big goal, I think, of ours. Yeah, shared yeah. Uh, shared dreams to get that out there, and uh, and a goal that we're so. actively working toward. Um, so we'll jump to Victor has a few more questions. Um, is there a rule for shutter speed and frame rate? Are there any rules for aperture? So oh, like, like shutter, like the shutter speed rule, like the 180 degree stuff. Yeah. Is there a rule for aperture? Uh, yeah, well, kind of, um, again, it, it's and for frame so rate how you well. want to tell your story. Frame rate is also very yeah. subjective. Exactly. Yeah, it actually is. Um, and so for aperture, it's kind of like, well, if you want more focus on your subject and less focus on the background, you want to open it up, let more light in. And uh, it kind of causes an effect to, to make everything kind of blurry and, and very un, unfocused in the background. But then like your subject what we call is going to be bokeh, where it's a shallow bokeh, depth of yeah. field is kind of a, a bokeh look. Exactly. And then, the, but the, your subject is very sharp. So it creates a really cool... Um, almost three-dimensional pop effect. But then say you want, um, you know, everything more in focus because you have a lot of moving pieces happening um, and you need that detail, that level of detail so the audience can kind of see everything that's moving around and going on. If you don't want anything out of focus, you kind of want to close your lens down and let everything more into focus, like down to, to below F4 and then on. Um, but then, yeah, for the shallow depth, you probably want to go, I'd say around 2.8 is a good, uh, or, or f-stop because i mean probably you're going to start with with f-stops not straight to t-stop uh, t-stops are a little different but for for just for general purposes around 2.8 um any higher and you're going to have real trouble keeping your subject in focus uh and any lower and you're going to lose and lose a little bit of that uh that's a field effect on if you're hyper focusing in on something yeah. Um, for frame rates, for frame rates, uh, I, I genuinely really enjoy 24 frames per second or two, two, three point. Uh, what's the twenty-three point nine eight? Um, yeah, exactly. But for all intents and purposes, we could say twenty-four frames. And twenty-four. Let, yeah. Let me exactly. add to the reason for that. The reason that twenty-four frames per second uh, is used is because in thirty-five millimeter film when you're watching like let's say the godfather or you know any classic films that were shot on 35 millimeter film it's only in recent years the digital cameras have been used in motion pictures you know mm-hmm. in recent years meaning the last 10 plus years um but in general in the history of cinema watching motion pictures you're used to watching 35 millimeter films which the frame rate is 24 frames a second, meaning there's 24 photos for every split second. And that's what makes it a motion picture. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of what it affects, what a lot of what the frame rate effects is motion blur and motion cadence. Um, so it's kind of like how the motion renders. Uh, yeah. 24 will give more cinematic motion rendering. There'll be more motion blur. Whereas 30 frames, there'll be a lot less motion blur and it'll look like characters are moving like way too fast. But uh, what I say, um, it looks like it has, it it has a, it affects the quality of the look, the overall quality, not to say that it's necessarily worse, sharper. It looks, yeah, yeah, it could, you know, it could be appropriate. Like I think watching sports 
at 30 frames per second or watching sports at 60 frames even 60, per second. Yeah, yeah, even 60 frames. I think football, they do in 60 frames. Yeah, 60 frames per second. It, like, it makes sense to me. You know, you want to see that real, realer than real sort of look, you know. Exactly. Watching the news, you know, like watching TV. Typically, TV in the past has been 30 frames per second. You know? Yeah, all, all broadcast television is 30 frames per second. Right. And then you go to Netflix and everything on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, those are probably more like more than likely going to be 24 frames per second because of the internet as a medium. To be to be 30 frames per second also looks like home like it looks like you're watching um, home videos. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it definitely has kind of a more digital motion cadence than, and it, it just looks for some reason it just does not look cinematic. Not to say that it can't look cinematic, but in nine times out of ten, it's going to look a little, sound like something's a little bit too digital. Very, very kind of a digital look to it. Yeah. Almost uh, soap opera or something. Right, know, right, right. That kind of look. Yeah, yeah good call. Um, and Victor's next question is, with the even with the ISO so low, what makes the film grainy? Even if your ISO is low? Yeah. And it, film, he, he means like a digital... Uh, that's what I, so, that's so ISO is kind of a digital, yeah, a digital way to kind of bump up or bump down your exposure without it touching the aperture. So you don't deal with the, the depth of field thing uh, that we were kind of talking about earlier. Um, if you have a low ISO, relatively low ISO, and you're still getting uh, noisy images. Um, yeah. But the problem but, is, by the way, shooting, ISO, yeah. I should, I do want to add to that, that ISO does stem from actual film days where like film stock yeah. itself did have an iso yeah. you know it could be like a 100 iso film or 400 iso film or whatever totally is this is this a film related question or is it a digital i guess is what I should let's, ask let's assume that let's I'm, I'm assuming he means digital that's what i assume yeah, yeah, yeah i'm yeah. thinking yeah, it's yeah. probably a digital so yeah. on a digital sensor it is different if, yeah that's true yeah on a digital sensor the iso um if you're lowering the iso past you should look up what camera you're using and what the base iso of that camera is um and if the base iso say is 800 then that's what is the proper exposure for that um sensor so if you shoot something properly exposed at uh one i guess say you bring it down to 100 iso you're not getting the full dynamic range of that sensor because it's digitally being brought down inside the camera. And what's going to happen is if you try to dig into your shadows, a lot of that information might, might be kind of noisier or vice versa. It's, it's just more kind of a, you're, you're, if you're getting still getting noisy images at a low ISO, it's probably because your image is not exposed correctly. Correct. So if you're, because yeah, you have it, to, it's important. It's yeah. really important to note that when you're trying to digitally add light, when there's not light there, it's yeah. like you're artif you're artificially you're getting weird noise patterns because there's not that information there. There's not yeah, the digital information that you're you're shedding light onto. So it's creating information that's not quite there. Exactly. And even if you shoot into a dark room with a low ISO, you're still gonna get a lot of noise because that's the camera sensor isn't picking up information. So it's trying to fill in that information with its own like kind of pixels and stuff. And that's where a lot of that noise comes in um, or compression. Uh, so if, if you're shooting into a dark room with a low ISO and you're still getting noise, it's because there's not proper exposure on your, on your either subject or background. And that's where the noise is being introduced. All right. So we're going to go to um, the third question from Michael, which I think is a, it's a great question. Uh, what sorts of things that are considered taboo in the industry in terms of professionalism? And he's and he wrote, in other words, what could a screenwriter or let's say a cinematographer do to prevent themselves from having more opportunities? Don't be late. Be nice. Yeah. Be pleasant I, to be around. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that for sure there's definitely like common sense things like, you know, like, that I think yeah. are true in every industry. Um, but I will be a jerk. That's maybe a big one. Yeah, that's a big one. You know, so let, like we'll talk. I, th I think what we should do is talk about quickly talk about those common sense things that are 
true for any industry. It's like, obviously show up on time, obviously have a positive attitude, you know, and don't be a jerk and treat people well. Um, but if we want to get into specifics, let's say stuff that are industry specifics in terms of professionalism, I think that's where it could get more complicated. Um, yeah. Cause I think like in any industry, there are people that can get clicky and, you know, you know, it can get, um, oh, well, I just don't like this person's politics. So I don't want to work with them yeah. anymore. You know, there, there could be that sort of thing, which unbeknownst to you, you know, you lost an opportunity and there's, I think it's a good question because I think the perception of this question what most people think from watching movies and things like that. It's like, they've heard that line. You're never going to eat lunch in this town again. I think, I think people think that they're going to be told off and they think they're going to be like kind of chased out of the industry. But in actuality, I think it's worse than that. I think you're just, your phone's not going to ring anymore. You know, it's like, you're, you're not necessarily going to know, why you don't have those opportunities, but they're just going to disappear, you know? And uh, I think yeah. one of the most important things that you could do, and this probably translates to any industry is to keep your word. I think it's, it's so important to keep your word, you know, Definitely. let's say, let's say you say you're going to do something, do it, you know? Um, you know, to me, I could tell you things that as a director, or like a turn off or like, I think when somebody's more concerned about like, like CYA, like covering their ass versus, you know, the greater task at hand, which is telling the story. I think to yeah. me, that's, that's kind of like a red flag for somebody. Um, you know, when, when somebody you know, personally, I like, I don't like sets where there's too many people that are not doing stuff. You know, if like, if they're sitting around talking about Game of Thrones instead of the movie that we're actually shooting, then to me, that's kind of like, well, I mean, there's always going to be like some chatter on the downtime with crew members, you know, but I think just, um, having your head in the game, being pleasant with people, showing up early. And I've heard from um, people that are production assistants on big sets and things like that, that there's a saying that's like early is, um, you know, if, if you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, you're fired. (laughs) So you want to get there early, you know, um, but is there any, anything else you want to talk add add to? I mean, that's that's the main thing I can think of. Is yeah, just be a team player. Don't be a jerk. Don't don't. And any anything you do, make sure it's not something that's holding up the production. And if it does hold up the production, make sure it's something that's worthy of holding up the production. Like make sure it's something that like is pivotal for the entire production because it's a team effort and when you're rude to your team or you do something that's like, you know, and then this is from personal experience because I've done things in the past where it's kind of like, you know, uh, Hey, that's not good for the team. And then you just have to learn from that and make sure that it never happens again yeah, and yeah. make sure that, yeah, that you collaborate with your team and make sure that from, from everything. Cause at the end of the day, like, I mean, that's what, that's what it is. You're just a, 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 a gear you know, in the machine and you have to like, if, if one thing's not working properly, then they're going to replace it with a different gear. Cause there is a, a, a ton of gears, you know, yeah. especially in, in, in the film industry and it can get replaced very easily. There is no shortage of gear. Right. Um, so you That's have true. to make and sure there, you're functioning and, properly. And by the way, there is very, very specific protocols, including how you're supposed to carry a lens from point A to point B that are, are absolutely in effect more so on bigger sets than they are on very small sets. So that's also important to learn. Um, You know, like for instance, if a lens is being transported from point A to point B, 
be like two hands have to be on the lens. And if the lens is unattended, you know, uh, somebody can get fired over that, you know, and, and they do get yeah. fired over those breach breaches of protocols or if they jump on the walkie talkie and they said 10 yeah. four after a command, but then they didn't understand what the command was. Um, yeah. that's grounds for firing if they ask again what that command was. So th- when they say 10 four, they better have understood the command, you know, so there's all sorts, there's all sorts of little things that you end yeah, up to, add, to add to that. To add to that, yeah, just make sure you know the rules of the set that you're working with and the right. people that you're working with. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right, because each set has a different protocol, you know, of kind of rules. And, you know, the bigger the set, the more that those... Yeah. And, and you don't want to be the one guy, the one guy that doesn't know the rules because yeah. you know, they won't work with you anymore. So right, make right. sure you ask around, make sure you know, and make, make sure you don't ask just anyone. Make sure you ask who you're supposed to ask, I guess. Because, you know, film sets can get kind of... Um, they particular, get, they get and, right. Yeah. Particular. That's a good way to put it, especially yeah. with union film sets when you have many different departments and many, many, many different people reporting to each other. And it, you know, like Alex said, it's it's kind of all gears, all parts of of a gear. You know, it's like those gears make up the machine. So the whole thing is like a machine that you know wants to run like a well-oiled machine. You know, yeah. and some people. Some directors are a little bit more lenient than others. And sometimes on these really big sets, you know, you, you might not be reporting to the director. You're, let's say you're a production assistant, you're reporting to the key PA and, um, you know, there's like a key grip, you know, there's, there's certain department heads, you know, there's definitely a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy. Oh. Um, so Victor's last question is, and I think this is the last question of the day, um, unless Michael wants to chime in on the chat with any more questions. Um, but when buying a camera, is the sensor size important, or do you feel that the megapixels are important? Um, I guess it depends. Uh, you kind of want to go for a balance of all these things, because then it's kind of like, well, if you're buying a huge sensor uh, on a camera, that's going to up the cost. And then the more the more resolution you have, that's also going to up the cost. So you kind of want to find the right balance between sensor size, resolution, and cost. Uh, right now, I wouldn't recommend any other camera than the Blackmagic 4Ks. And I'm definitely not sponsored by them to say that. I've just yeah. been working with nothing but Blackmagic for could, years. I could also vouch for black magic as well i've become such a fan alex is uh uh, a testament to it as well because in the early days i used i used black magic before working with alex but then seeing what he did with the trouble and then also understanding them as a company their color science on their their cameras they're they're a fantastic company and i'm also not sponsored by them although i I wish i was (laughs) i wish we were we should get sponsored by them but uh, yeah, Blackmagic, their current offering, the, the 4K uh, pocket cinema camera is just insane. For you get what, the best bang the for your is. buck. Yeah, best bang mm-hmm. for your buck with yeah. Blackmagic. Great color science, great, pretty much great everything. And the, the offset cost of what you need to buy to kind of make sure it runs as a cinema camera, which is like an external battery and external hard drive, you can still build a rig for way cheaper than any other camera like on the market. In terms of in terms of quality, in my opinion, and it gets gets you experience with RAW, which I mean, RAW is kind of like future proof at this point because everybody's shooting, you know, and especially the bigger budgets are shooting with RAW, and you want to learn how to handle RAW footage pretty much as fast as possible in in the industry. I think. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. yeah I think Blackmagic and 4Ks, 4Ks are definitely the best. Uh, if if you had to decide between sensor size and resolution megapixels, uh. I would say, I don't know. It, it kind of depends what kind of look are you going for. If you want something more cinematic looking, I would say sensor size is going to give you a really cool, creamy, cinematic look and let you let you kind of handle low light better and, and handle kind of, you know, the, the bokeh or the out-of-focus areas like we were talking about earlier are going to look better on a larger sensor. Whereas, oh, and, and your lenses are probably going to be more compatible if you have full frame lenses uh with a full frame with a full size sensor but then if your lenses aren't compatible with a full size sensor and then you get a full size sensor 
you're going to have to get a whole new set of lenses to be compatible with that Hello. So lenses is also something you want to talk about. Lenses are compatible with which sensor. Um, but then if you want, you know, like say you're shooting a documentary or an independent film on the rush, you might want to think about doing, uh, going with a camera with more resolution so you can have more framing options and cropping options in post. Uh, kind of because you know you're rushing around and getting the shot really fast, so you might have time to compose things properly, or the time to kind of like uh, get get things where you need them, and then that gives you more uh, post production uh, possibilities. I think is with more megapixels or more resolution. And I guess that's the best I can answer that. Yeah, but great questions from the film students. Which I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you to Michael for being on the li- on the line live and um, and obviously special thanks to you, Alex, for joining this call, our yeah, no preliminary call. Hopefully, you'll be a regular guest on this private podcast. Um, Definitely. And uh, you know, shout out to Victor Freeman and Damian Daniels who couldn't be here but are going to be listening later on. And uh, definitely shout out to the Film Connection team. And uh, thank you guys. So once again, thanks, Alex. And uh, look forward to talking soon. Definitely. All right, guys. Have a good night. All right. Stay safe out there. Stay safe, everybody. Later.